And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer. I'm Dan Elmendorf here at Redeemer Broadcasting. And joining me in the studio today, Reverend Mark Diedrich, pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York. Hello. And Dr. Hans Vogt, associate professor, Ulster County Community College. Good morning. Gentlemen, on the agenda today is a question that came in. Originally, the question stated this, what was the progression of education in the American family since pre-colonization? And as we worked through that question itself, we realized really at the core here and what we need to talk about on this program today and possible future uh, sessions together is what is an education? It's really begging that question, what is an education? And also some sub-questions, how did we get our current education, and perhaps what is our response to that? So uh, I'm thinking, uh, Hans, with your background and history in particular, maybe you can kind of get us started here today in terms of some of the history. We've inherited some facts on the ground here. Uh, We've inherited a particular educational milieu. Um, How did we get here? What came before us? Right. Well, the whole idea of universal public education is a relatively new one. Um, If you go back to medieval Europe, education was very limited. Um, Probably no more than 5% of the population were literate that is able to read and write. Less than 1% had a university education. And of course, those universities were established by the church, staffed by the church. You had to be ordained to be a professor. Uh, And uh, a liberal arts education was meant to train leaders. It was not meant for the masses. What really begins to change that is the Reformation. Uh, The Protestant reformers like Martin Luther and John Calvin wanted all believers to be able to read and understand the Bible for themselves. And that means they had to be literate. Uh, In fact, Martin Luther said, if there ever be any considerable blow given to the devil's kingdom, it must be by youth excellently educated. It's beautiful. Mm. Yeah. And then that idea came over to the colonies with the Puritans. The Puritans in New England established the first public schools, Massachusetts in 1647, and then Connecticut a few years later, required all towns to have uh, common schools. If you had 50 families, you had to have a primary school, that is one that taught you mm-hmm. know, the three R's, reading, writing, arithmetic. Uh, and then if you had 100 or more families, you had to have a secondary school, which meant a Latin grammar school to prepare people to go to Harvard College, which the Puritans also established uh, for the purpose of training ministers. So the Latin was there right from the beginning. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, and in fact, Harvard's original charter starts off, whereas through the good hand of God, many will well-devoted persons have been and daily are moved and stirred to give and bestow sundry gifts, legacies, lands, and revenues for the advancement of all good literature, arts, and sciences in Harvard College in Cambridge and the county of Middlesex, and to the maintenance of the president and fellows, and for all the accommodation of the building, and other necessary provisions that may, and this is the important part, that may conduce the education of the English and Indian youth of this country in knowledge and godliness. Mm. And I would emphasize that godliness. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. The idea was to not only educate them 
for basic skills in terms of reading and writing and doing math and so forth, but to train them morally, uh, to develop the moral conscience, to train them in understanding what God requires uh, of them. Cotton Mather, who is one of the leading uh, Puritan divines, uh, exhorted his uh, fellow uh, Puritans to maintain those schools. He declared, schools wherein the youth may by able masters be taught the things that are necessary to qualify them for future serviceableness mm-hmm. and have their manners therewithal well formed under a laudable discipline and be over and above all well catechized in the principles of religion, those would be a glory of our land. <laughs> what was the time frame of that quote there? Uh, he's writing uh, in the uh, um, late 1600s, early 1700s. Mm, okay. One of the, the other things is it not only reached to the settlers there, but if you remember, uh, John Eliot, the missionary to the Indians, translated the first Indian Bible in 1663. Consider this. There had been other Bible translations before, but the vast majority of those Bible translations had been into languages that were already written languages. The language that Eliot wrote, the Bible he translated, was not in a written language. He was writing that for the first time, which meant he had to there, in turn, educate all the Indians so they could read the Bible that he had just translated. Mm -hmm. So you see how important the education was, not just even for the colonists, but how they tried to reach out to the Indians to Mm -hmm. uh, educate them as well. Well, it's probably stating the obvious, but it sounds like uh, in these early days of America, particularly, there's this assumption that education is founded upon Christ and the Christian gospel. And that was an assumption, absolutely. (laughs) That certainly comes out, um, Hans, you were quoting uh, Cotton Mather, when he talks about being well catechized in the principles of religion. Mm -hmm. Right away you think, oh, wait a minute, that's right. In those days, what would have been high on their minds was the Westminster Confession of Faith mm-hmm. and the shorter and larger catechism, uh, a question-and-answer format for learning and mm-hmm. teaching the fundamentals of the Christian faith. Sure. And even when you look at uh, the New England Primer, which was one of the main books they used to introduce uh, mm-hmm. reading and writing, it was filled with scripture and uh, later uh, Noah Webster's Blue Books, and then the uh, McGuffey readers uh, going into the 19th century again. Mm-hmm. Uh, even as students were learning to read and write, they were also at the same time imbuing those biblical stories and biblical principles. Interesting mm-hmm. thing in McGuffey's readers, uh, and we use them, by the way, for teaching our kids when they were little. McGuffey gives an, an introduction, and he talks about his use of Scripture. And in essence, what he winds up doing is apologizing for not using more scripture than what he does. And he uses it considerably. But uh, yeah. Yeah. There's quite a difference here. I'm going to uncover a quote here that I came across this morning from an essay that was written by Cornelius Van Til. The essay is entitled Antithesis in Education. And he starts off that essay, he says, um, the principles by which believers live are squarely opposed to the principles by which unbelievers live. This is true in the field of education as well as in the church. And he goes on, accordingly we speak of antithesis in education. These antitheses cover the whole educational field. They cover first the field of educational philosophy. So in this Christian educator's mind, at the very core was the Christian faith. 
And I, I just love Van Til. What little bit I've read of him makes so much sense. Yeah, it all comes down to where your starting point is. Are you approaching education from a Christian worldview uh, with the understanding that God is the creator and Mm. sustainer of the universe? Or are you approaching it from a different worldview which sees the universe as essentially a cosmic accident? You know, let's pick up that thought. And when we come back, we're up against a break here. You're listening to A Plain Answer here on Redeemer Broadcasting. Today's topic is concerning education. Stay with us now and we'll be right back. We'll be right back with our program in just a minute. Now a reminder that your gifts to this ministry enable us to bring you thoughtful, Christ-centered programming 24 hours a day. Would you prayerfully consider helping us with a tax-deductible gift this month? Redeemer Broadcasting is a 501c3 not-for-profit broadcast ministry. We're entirely listener-supported and have no advertisements. If you would like to help support us this month, and perhaps in the future, our mailing address is Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Once again, Redeemer Broadcasting, Post Office Box 1520, Olive Bridge, New York, 12461. Stay with us now for the second half of our program. And welcome back. You're tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Today's discussion is concerning education. It started initially with a question that came in, what was the progression of education in the American family? since pre-colonization, and we realized, hey, that brings to mind many more questions. First of all is, what is an education? Secondly, how did we get to our current educational model uh, historically? And uh, we were talking a little bit about uh, what is really at the core of an education before we took a break, and I was sharing, uh, well, all of us were sharing, but I was sharing from a quote from Cornelius Van Til, and I wanted to continue a short quote And then you guys can take it from there. He says, Non-Christians believe that the universe has created God. They have a finite God. Christians believe that God has created the universe. They have a finite universe. Non-Christians, therefore, are not concerned with bringing the child face-to-face with God. They want to bring the child face-to-face with the universe. Non-Christian education is godless education. What is of most important to us in education, that which is absolutely indispensable to us, is left out entirely. And I think some of the things that we were talking about earlier in this session regarding the Puritans, their goal for education, that the children be catechized in the principles of religion, that the Reformation, the Holy Reformation, would continue in the colonies of New England. Their opinions, I think, are really capsulized in this short quote from Van Til. 
there's a couple things I want to say about that. First off, I have a, an acquaintance that we got into this discussion, basically, and I basically said God created man, and he turned around and said, no, man created God. That's one interesting. One of those things, yeah. And it was one of those aspects of it. But the way Van Til's talks about the goal of, if you will, the secularists is to look at the universe and to come face to face with the universe. Mm-hmm. I cannot help but remember seeing Carl Sagan in one of his cosmos things, and there he was. He was standing there in awe of the universe. Mm-hmm. In far contrast with what Proverbs says, in uh, Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Mm-hmm. And that's where it must start, yeah. the fear of the Lord. That's where we really get our knowledge from. Mm-hmm. Uh, Calvin talked about that, too, in the Institutes. Mm-hmm. Well, how do we know anything? And knowledge of God, knowledge of man. Well, we must know God first. And the knowledge of God then leads us into studying uh, the natural universe. Um, Over a thousand years ago, um, the idea of, in the medieval universities, Thomas Aquinas and other scholars talked about the idea of the two books. The one book was, of course, the Bible. uh, And then the second book was the book of nature. Mm. And Aquinas said, God wrote both books. God is both the author Mm. of Scripture and the author of the universe. Mm. Uh, And therefore, we study both to learn more about God, to learn more about uh, the author. Uh, And that idea repeated, actually, in the Belgic Confession that comes out of of the Reformation. And even in the 17th and 18th century, we had a group of scientists, uh, Isaac Newton, Robert Boyle, called the physical theologians. And basically what they said, they study the universe to see God in it. And for them, it was to prove the existence of God. I'm not sure that they actually did that, but at least they worshipped the God that they saw. They had a very commendable starting point. And that's something that uh, I think, unfortunately, perhaps got lost uh, somewhere along the way with American evangelicalism. The Wheaton scholar Mark Knoll, about 15 years ago, wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Mind, in which he really took American evangelicals to task for not developing the life of the mind, not pursuing Christian education as fully as it could be pursued. Mm -hmm. And what he argued in that book, and I think correctly, is that... um, American evangelicalism tends to be very pragmatic, very focused on revival, uh, results, um, explaining the gospel as simply as possible in the interest of converting as many people as possible. And while there are advantages to that, certainly, uh, the disadvantage, Noel points out, is that in the process, evangelicals sort of forgot uh, Mm. how to think deeply about some of these manners and ceded control of education to secular people who did not share the same basis for yeah. that education. Yeah. As you were mentioning that, Hans, I, I remember several years ago I was at a General Assembly in Louisville where Albert Moeller was speaking, and he was basically saying the same thing. You know, he, He's saying the Christians have become so ignorant we can't even have a good argument amongst ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> it seems, uh, going back to your original quote there, Hans from Cotton Mather, It seems that the presumption was that the minister was very, very involved in the school of that day. And he saw it really as his duty to make sure that these young minds were properly trained to think right, to think God's thoughts after him. And so it was part of his responsibility as a minister of word and sacrament 
to make sure that education during the week was conducted properly. Correct me if I'm wrong. No, that's absolutely right. The public schools in colonial New England were under the charge of the Ecclesiastical Society, Mm. which is also the same group which maintained the the meeting house Mm. for the church. Mm -hmm. And in fact, Cotton Mather said, the minister that shall give his neighbors no rest until they have agreeable schools among them, (laughs) and that shall himself also at some times inspect and visit the schools, will therein do much towards fulfilling that part of his ministry, feed my lambs. Mm. So it was his responsibility. He was to essentially badger them until they got it right. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) You you know, in the Presbyterian form of government, I mean, what is the minister called? He's an elder, but what is he called? He's the teaching elder. He's a teaching elder. He has a responsibility to see that his people are taught. Now, um, as education has progressed, I don't know if it's time in our discussion to take this a step further. Um, What are some of the things that have now become imported into an education, maybe during the last century or the century before that, as we progress from the Puritans onward, what are some of the changes that we have seen? Sure. Well, we should point out that, um, of course, we said the Puritans established the schools in New England. Other colonies did not have uh, a public school system. Uh, Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. what you see about the time of the Revolution is that in New England, virtually everybody is literate. Uh, over 90% of males and over 80% of females were literate, and those were the highest literacy rates in the world in the 1770s. The further south you went in the colonies, literacy rates declined because of the lack of public schools. But even in the southern colonies, literacy rates were equal to or better than England, hmm. uh, which had the highest literacy rates in Europe uh, at that oh, time. Okay. In the early national period, uh, that is in the early 1800s, you have a mix uh, of public schools, that is, schools, uh, the classic one-room schoolhouse, which was partly supported by tax dollars, but more by tuition, actually, rates paid by parents, and a variety of private schools. Some of these were academies, sort of the forerunners of modern college prep schools, the prep private schools. Uh, Some of these were uh, explicitly religious schools. As Lutheran and Catholic immigrants began coming into the country, they began creating their own parochial schools. Um, There were also charity schools that were set up specifically for the children of poor parents or orphans Mm. who could not Mm. afford uh, Mm. the rates. Uh, So there was a variety of of schools uh, throughout the Northeast and Midwest. What happens in the 1840s and 1850s is that there's a movement led by uh, people like Horace Mann Mm. in Massachusetts and Henry Barnard in, in Connecticut to do away with that and try to create a single, universal, compulsory public school system. Hmm. Uh, and that Massachusetts is the first state in 1852 to require compulsory education. Um, by 1890, all the other states of the Northeast and Midwest had adopted compulsory education. And by 1918, all what was then 48 states uh, in the Union had adopted compulsory education. Oh, okay. Uh, and, of course, the, the point of that was really, the goal of that was to, again, mold children, but not in the same way that the Puritans had in mind. The mm-hmm. goal was not to mold them in terms of godliness, necessarily, but to mold them in terms of discipline. Uh, mm. 
Horace Mann reached out for support to the leading industrialists and uh, merchants, and basically he told them that what the public schools would do for them was to create obedient workers, workers mm. who were used to showing up when a bell rang, staying until the next bell rang, uh, taking orders, uh, passive obedience, um, different than what the Puritans that had is. in mind in terms of what that the is. goal was. Yeah. Yeah, they're trying to make a, a moral society. I think this is also the time of the growth of Horace Bushnell and mm-hmm. uh, his work with children. And, and the idea is to make a moral society without getting bogged down with doctrine. And what happened is there, I think you see in the underpinnings, the theological underpinnings, are being kicked away little by little. Mm-hmm. Sure, Horace Mann's a Unitarian. Uh, many of the other leaders of this movement were Unitarians or on, on the liberal end of the Protestant theological spectrum. Of course, if you want to look at this uh, also, even the growth of Unitarianism at this time, I would say you look at the two great awakenings within the Christian church. The first great awakening is a Calvinist great awakening. And Jonathan Edwards writes a narrative of surprising conversions. Why are the conversions surprising? He says, because nothing else went different except the Holy Spirit worked differently. That's why they're surprising. You get the Second Great Awakening, and you have Charles Finney, who writes the book Revival, and he tells you, if you don't have Revival, this is how you do it, A, B, C, D. It's a clearly Arminian approach. Well, one of the things that I would contend is what happens when you lose the Calvinism. You open yourself up for all kinds of things, such as Unitarianism. Mm -hmm. As soon as New England lost its Calvinist roots, the Transcendentalists moved in and the Unitarians moved in. And then what happens is the Universalists move in. Universalists, of course, believing that everybody's saved. The espousing Unitarianism, shaking off the Trinity, what happens there is you take the scriptures and you say, well, I can eliminate certain parts that seem tough to me. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. And if you do it in one place, then you do it in the others. And the, the next place that comes in is what happens to all these poor people who have never heard the gospel, and boom, there they go. <laughs> well, I see we're getting close on time, gentlemen. <laughs> um, you're listening to A Plain Answer here on Redeemer Broadcasting. Let's have a couple of short summary statements. Today we're dealing with education, some of the history of education in America, um, any any closing remarks uh, before we shut down the mics here for this session today? Well, I think what we've talked about is a progression uh, from uh, public schools beginning in colonial New England with a, very much a Christian worldview and a focus on training for godliness, and then a, a progression away from that to um, two centuries later when the universal compulsory public education system is established, uh, no longer is it on an explicitly Christian basis. Mm-hmm. Still, as Mark said, trying to inculcate morality, but it's now morality without any firm basis or rooting mm-hmm. in Scripture or historic Christian understanding. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think when you look at that, of course, again, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and uh, and wisdom. And that's where we have to start with this and understand that's where we've got to go. Cornelius Van Til had it absolutely right. And I think probably in our next program, we're going to talk about what that means for us today with our kids in school and homeschools and and Christian schools and all of that. That's right. Well, thank you, gentlemen. Um, It's been a joy and privilege today to share with you in the studio here. 
Reverend Mark Diedrich, pastor of the PCA Church in Kingston, New York, and Dr. Hans Vogt, associate professor, Ulster County Community College. And just want to leave with our listeners uh, this suggestion for a book that you may want to obtain. I wish we had copies of it here. We'd give it out. But it's called Foundations of Christian Education. And it's a short little book, little paperback, Addresses to Christian Teachers by Louis Burkhoff and Cornelius Van Til. It's edited by Dennis E. Johnson and published by Presbyterian and Reformed Publishing Company. Should be available via the web. Do a search for Foundations of Christian Education, and hopefully uh, next week we may uh, quote a little bit more from uh, this excellent book on education. You've been tuned to A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. Join us next week at this same time, and thanks for joining us today. May the Lord richly bless you today as you serve Him.